Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Well, I would say you guys look good, but I can't see anything because of this light in my face, so uh, please don't leave while I'm preaching. Uh, if you guys get really quiet, that's what I'm going to assume. I, uh, I am so excited to be here. If I haven't met you, my name is Blake. I get to be the pastor of this amazing church family, and uh, this is a long time coming. We spent the last two years in a bar. We went from a bar to a Baptist church, which, I mean, we got to be one of the only churches in America to ever do that. So this is a really, really exciting day for us. I almost feel like we're a grown-up church now. We have our own building. And uh, I just want to start by thanking the Dream Team, those who uh, have served countless hours this week. Uh, getting this place ready. Yeah, clap for them. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. The, the man hours that went into this place uh, to get it ready for our service. And we still have some more things we would like to do. Um, you know, like, I, I'm sure that this pink carpet was in great style when they put it in. Uh, eventually, we would like to have maybe new carpet and those kind of things. And uh, we'll be able to move uh, at the speed of your generosity on those kind of things. And uh, what I'm really excited about, though, is that we have the opportunity to build on what we're doing. You know, for so long, we would just set up and tear down, set up and tear down week after week. Uh, now we have a place we can call home, a place that we can begin to add to uh, and make our own place, uh, which is really cool. God has really blessed us. And I was thinking this week uh, just how special it is that we're standing, that I'm standing in this building. This is actually uh, the site of one of my very first sermons ever. I would tell you guys to go listen to it, but you shouldn't. It was terrible. It was, it was a really bad sermon. Uh, but this church, Liberty Baptist, that used to be here, uh, there was about six of them. And, uh, they, and then by the time I preached the second time here, there was about three of them. Uh, they called me to come preach to them. And they were, they were so kind and so wonderful to a young guy who was just starting out his ministry. And uh, they felt really discouraged many times about uh, how things had seemed to be dying. And eventually, this church did die. They walked out of here to never come back again. But what I love about God is that it's not finished until he says it's finished. And there is a huge theme throughout all of Scripture. In fact, it's the theme of the gospel. And that is when we think something is dead, new life comes out of it. And I just want to honor the legacy of those people of Liberty Baptist Church, who in 1980-something built this building. The people who were serving God as they gave of their money and they served God together. And they had no idea that one day a little church plant would be in this building. But because of their faithfulness, we get to stand here. And I think that's a really cool thing, uh, church family. So if we could, let's give them a hand also. And that's really, uh, I'm going to segue here because that's what pastors do. That's really the theme of Ezra 4, which if you have a Bible, uh, grab it and turn to Ezra chapter 4. You're probably going to have to use your table of contents because it's not a very common book of the Bible. Uh, But Ezra chapter 4 is this theme of how men, when they try to stop God from doing something, it doesn't tend to work out very well. Things are not finished until God says they are finished. What God wants to accomplish, God will accomplish. Oh, I saw everybody for a minute. Yeah, let's do that. That's good. Uh, Yeah, you guys look great this morning. Uh, (laughs) uh, What God wants to accomplish, God will accomplish. And that's what we see in Ezra chapter 4. Now, for those of you who haven't been following along with us, or this is your first Sunday, Ezra is a story that takes place about 500 years before Jesus walks on the earth. And in Ezra, we see that God is bringing his people, the Jewish people, from uh, captivity in Babylon. 
Uh, Seventy years prior, they had been slaves. Uh, the Nebuchadnezzar in the the Persian Empire came in and they took over the Jewish people. And they took them 500 miles uh, to uh, Babylon and they made them slaves. And then God said through the prophet Jeremiah that one day I will send you back to Jerusalem. One day I will send you back to rebuild the temple that they have destroyed. And then sure enough, when Cyrus takes over, God stirs his heart to release the Jews to go back to their homeland. And a very small portion of them actually went back. The majority of them stayed in Babylon, as you probably would also. It's a 500-mile journey, and they didn't have cars like we did. This was a long, hard, difficult journey. And yet these people go back to their homeland to begin to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And we said the reason why it's important for us in 2021 what these people did is because when Jesus shows up, we find out that that was just a shadow of what he actually wants to do. We also, as Christians, are called to rebuild the temple, but the temple is no longer a place. Make no mistake, God is no more present in this place than he is everywhere else. God is everywhere. This is an amazing gift that we have, but we will never idolize this building because the church is no longer a place. The church is a people. And if you want to connect with God, which is what the temple was all about, people coming to connect with a holy God, you do it through his people because his people are the living temple. Peter says, we are the living stones. We're like bricks in God's amazing temple. And just as the Jewish people were to rebuild Jerusalem, we're to rebuild the world. See, the Jewish mission ended in Jerusalem. Ours started in Jerusalem. Jesus says, from this place, you will go out and bring my kingdom to bear on the world. That everything we do Monday through Saturday matters just as much as what we do on Sunday. As we are to be restorers and rebuilders of this world. We all have our unique gifts and we all have our unique talents and we're to use those things for the good of the world and for the good of God's kingdom. And so we see the people come in chapter one and they arrive and the first thing they do is they begin to worship God. They lay an altar down and then they lay the foundation of the temple. And then it says at the end of chapter three, which is where we left off, that there were people who were weeping and there were people who were rejoicing, which is the sound of Jesus's church. At any given time, some of you are weeping because you've just had the worst day ever. And at any given time, there's some of you that are rejoicing because of what God's done in your life. And yet it says this beautiful thing that it all came up and it made one noise. You couldn't distinguish between the weeping and the rejoicing. And then we get a little bit of foreshadowing at the end of chapter 3. It says it was heard far off. Well, who was it heard by? Chapter 4 tells us. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord... The God of Israel. It's their enemies who heard this. And we're about to walk into a chapter of great opposition. Uh, And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's really hard to do good things. Like there's times in which you're, you're trying to make your life better. You know, like, God, I went to church. Why did my life fall apart? God, I've been praying more. Why is it not working? Or maybe, you know, you start to give money and you're like, well, then why did I lose my job? See, we tend to find that when we begin to try to do good things, whether it's starting a new habit or ending a sin, or maybe it's restoring a relationship, you know, you you need to restore it. And you're the bigger person and you go and you say, I just, I want to say, I'm sorry. And the person says, well, good. Thank you. And on the inside, you're like, oh, you're the one that's supposed to be saying sorry, you know, or maybe for some of you, it's ending a relationship. You know, like if there was a button you could press and you could end the relationship and there would be no collateral damage, you would have already done it by now. But you know, it's not that easy. You know, it's not that easy to get toxic relationships out of your life. And you begin to ask, you know, God, why do you make it so hard? Why is it so difficult? Why do we face opposition? And I think we see three reasons why, as we look at scripture, why God makes it so difficult sometimes for us to do good things. But what I want to do first is I'm just going to read through the chapter 
and I, I'm going to provide some commentary along the way. Uh, let me pray for us as we jump into this, though. Father, we thank you for this amazing gift that we have today. Uh, Lord, that we get to gather in a place uh, to worship you. God, you've been with us from the very beginning, and it's amazing to see all of the great things you've done. But Lord, we've also had our fair share of opposition as a church along the way. And God, sometimes as the pastor of the church, somebody who's a, supposed to be a, a leader in the faith, I can often, sometimes when I'm all alone, begin to wonder if you're in it at all. I can begin to wonder if the opposition that we're facing is even worth the things we're trying to do. And Lord, I know that that's not just me, and it's not just our church family, it's in our lives. God, that sometimes we're doing everything we can to make the right decisions, and yet life seems to continue to go against us. People continue to go against us. Jesus, would you show us today why opposition is so important? God, would you show us that we love you not in spite of our opposition, but we love you in our opposition. We rejoice in our suffering, Lord, as we pursue all that you have for us. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the enemies hear it, and then they approach Zerubbabel. He's kind of the leader of this section. Uh, Ezra 1 through 6 uh, has the leader Zerubbabel. And then at the end of the book, we'll have the guy who the book is named after Ezra leading. And then Nehemiah is obviously led by Nehemiah. And these enemies, they come to Zerubbabel and the family heads, and they said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. So in other words, they're, they're trying to deceive the Jewish people. The best way to destroy anything is from the inside. Like when churches die, it's very rarely because somebody from the outside hated the church. You know what causes a church to die? When there's fighting inside of the church. Things begin to implode from the inside. And in your own life, you know what will often take you off, of course, whether it's starting a habit or ending something, whether it's restoring a relationship or ending a relationship? It's not what anybody on the outside says. It's what happens on the inside. It's, it's self-implosion. We see this all the time. And we see here that this is the, the first step. This is the first thing they want to do. They want to deceive from the inside. And then as we keep going, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other heads of Israel's family answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. You know, you can't build God's house with us. But... In truth, what we have to have as Christians is this word called discernment. It's really important for you to not always be nice. Uh, parents, if you're a parent in here, and especially if your kid is under the age of 13, your job is most certainly not to be their friend. You know, they may like you, but they may not like you, and that's okay. Your job is to what? It's to be their parent. And so sometimes when they're under the age of 13, now when they're 7, versus 17, things obviously change. But when they're under the age of 13... And they have a bad group of friends that is taking them on a bad path. You know what you have to say? No. And you remove them from the friend group. And they will hate you. And they will think you're the meanest person ever. But if you've been around long enough, you know that what often causes people to go off course is not the people who don't like them, but the people who they decide to associate with. So we have to have discernment. And in our own lives, we have to have discernment. You know, uh, I spent about 15 minutes on TikTok the other day uh, because somebody... Uh, I knew it had some videos on there, so I was looking at this. And it, uh, somebody I know is my sister. I'm just going to call her out. She's not here. Uh, and, and I went on TikTok, and I'm not saying that Satan created TikTok to destroy us. But I am saying that if he created something to destroy us, I don't think it would look any different than what TikTok looks like. 
I mean, I, I was there for 15 minutes, and I mean, my mind was blown by the stuff that I was seeing, and, and not really in a good way, to be honest. Uh, and, and I just thought about it. Uh, it's not just TikTok. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm old, so Facebook is where I spend my time. Uh, and it's, it's really no better. And the reason it's no better is because what? Other people are deciding for us what we see. Other people are deciding for us what comes into our minds and what comes into my thought life. And friends, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. That stuff affects you a lot more than what you think it might affect you. We have to have discernment. Am I spending time? Am I reading things I need to be reading? Am I looking at things I need to be looking at? Because it's going to affect me. And sometimes those things are the things that destroy me. Now, if you're of an older persuasion, you might be saying, that's right, social media is from the devil. And I would just ask you also, you know, how does cable news uh, help your heart? Uh, you know, like, I've never watched Fox News or CNN and then just left and went, man, the world is a great place to live. No, every time they have something on there, the world is falling apart. And I don't blame them. I mean, that's how they get TV ratings. But just watch the commercials to one of these things. You know, it's like every commercial is, you know, the world is ending. You need to buy gold. The, and then the next commercial is, the world is ending and gold is going away. You need to buy this thing. The world is ending. You need to buy Bitcoin. And by the end of the commercials, you're like, I don't even know what's going on in my soul right now. Now, do I buy gold or get rid of gold? Do I buy Bitcoin or do I get rid of it? I don't know what to do. And what I know from the Bible is that God has given me a spirit of peace, not a spirit of confusion. And so anytime I feel that kind of confusion, I know that it's not from God. And I'm not saying, you know, you should avoid the news. I'm not saying you should avoid social media. But I am 100% saying we ought to be careful about what we allow into our lives. Because often the thing that destroys us is not what's outside of us, but what is inside of us. We have to have discernment. Now, they had discernment, but it didn't stop opposition. So says, then the people, this would be the enemies, who were already in the land, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. And then we see in verses 6 down through 22, what they do is they, uh, they tattletale to the king. They say, King, uh, they write him a letter. They say, you know, these Jewish people were terrible. If you go back in your records and you look at it, they caused a whole bunch of problems and uprisings. And, you know, I could preach a whole sermon there about how often the, the, the devil, the enemy, and the people in our lives will use our past to keep us where we are. Sometimes we even use our own past to keep us where we are. And there's a fear of hoping for the future because, you know, the minute I start to make traction in this new habit or the minute I begin to make some positive change in my life, I remember, wait a minute, Blake, look at all these other failures you have in the past. And I let the past kind of become the prologue to my life. But that's a different sermon. You got that part for free. They begin to uh, call out to the king to stop them. And the king looks at his records and uh, he says, you know what? These Jewish people were. They were terrible. And so he says, I decree that they stop building the temple. What do we see here? We see people discouraging. We see people discouraging. How many of you know that if you try to do anything good, there's some people in your life who don't want you to change? Uh, I read an incredibly depressing book. I would not encourage you to read it at all. It was called uh, How We Change. Uh, but really, the whole book was about how we don't change. It, it was like 10 reasons why we tend to stay the same. And the author's whole point was people stay the same because there's a lot of comfort in staying the same. And people in your life want you to stay the same because there's a lot of comfort for them in staying the same. We see this a lot in addiction treatment uh, where you know the spouse will say, I want my husband or I want my wife to get better. And then their husband or their wife begins to get better, and it reveals something about them. It reveals that, wait a minute, I'm not needed anymore. 
The system was working a certain way when you were a drunk, or the system was working a, a certain way when you were on pills, or the system was working a certain way when you did whatever it was, and now you're starting to get better, and guess what? It's revealing faults in me, and I don't want that to happen. So you will have people who try to fight against you when you try to make any progress. As a church family, this is an exciting day for us in a new building, but guess what I can tell you? As we attempt to push back darkness, darkness will push back on us. The only way to not face discouragement from other people, the only way to not face opposition from other people is to say the same. Status quo is very, very comfortable. And for a lot of us, we need to admit the fact that staying the same is kind of what we want to do because change is very difficult. And they have these people discouraging them. Um, I was thinking about this when I was preparing this week about when I ran a half marathon. I don't know if you can call it running. It was more walking and limping and crying and crawling. Uh, I was like one-fourth of the way through when the guy who won the half marathon was finished. It was, it was very difficult. And, uh, you know, there, there were some people on the side of the roads who would encourage you. And I really liked that. You know, people would stand out there with signs uh, encouraging you. And they, I mean, they were dedicated because they waited until I came around. Uh, there's a, a lady passed me. I'm not kidding you guys. I'm not making this up. 73 years old with a neck brace on. She passed me at about the five mile mark. I said, God, I will die, but I will not be beat by this lady. So, you know, that's how slow I was moving during this race. And so these people, God bless them, stood out there for a very long time holding encouraging signs. Like, you can do it. You know, uh, one of my favorite signs was uh, Kevin Durant would have quit by now. Uh, I really appreciated that one. And, uh, you know, but then there were these people who just, Satan sent them to tempt you. Uh, at about mile three, they were giving out beers. Uh, and people took the beers. Like these college kids running with two Bud Lights in their hands. And then uh, by the end of it, I was passing them as they were puking on the side of the road. Uh, so there was, you know, there was temptation. But then there was also just flat out discouraging signs. Like there was a guy holding a sign at about like mile uh, four. He said, you're not even close. That's what his sign said. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. You know, but there you are on the sidelines while I'm actually in this thing. And life is like that. You're going to have people who are constantly discouraging you. You know, there's really, there's two types of people. Uh, there's the, the hummingbirds and then there's the buzzards. Uh, God tends to put the two together in marriage. You know, there's the Eeyores, the people who, you know, you're always going to find something negative. You know, if it's, if it's cloudy outside, you're depressed because it's cloudy outside. And if the sun shines, it's, well, we're probably going to get sunburnt anyways. You know, you're just Eeyore at all times. And uh, what you find in, in nature is that the hummingbird and the buzzard are in the same ecosystem. And yet the hummingbird finds things that are sweet and the buzzard finds things that are dead. Uh, I, in, in my marriage, am, am the hummingbird. My wife is the buzzard. Uh, <laughs> she's in kids, guys. Come on, it's a joke. <laughs> Easy. Uh, but you're, you're going to have these people who always point out the negatives. You're going to have these people who try to confuse you and take you off of the course of what God has set for you. We're going to have people who discourage us. Believe it or not, there are people who don't like me. I know, it's amazing. Hard to believe. Uh, the laughter hurts. Um, when we planted the church, uh, I remember like... Really early, we had just announced that we were planting a church, and I got a, an email from a guy I'd never met in my life, very angry guy. Um, you know, I, I don't think he smiled in a long time, and he sent me a very long email about why our church was a false church, and I shouldn't be the pastor because I don't preach from the King James Bible, and I don't have kids, and the Bible says elders are supposed to, you know, be good parents. And 
I mean, just on and on with this stuff. And then, you know, I did the good Christian thing of just ignoring it. No, I didn't. I wasted two days responding to this guy going back and forth in a fight. And isn't it easy to do that when people attempt to discourage us? Isn't it so easy to buy into what they are doing? So we see here the Jewish people, they continue to work. But at the end of it, what happens? Well, look with me at verse uh, 23. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rahum, Shemeshai the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. I want you to put yourself in the sandals of the Jewish people who made this journey. Can you imagine how frustrating this would be? You know, you're a younger guy or a younger girl, and you've been in slavery your whole life, and God finally does this exciting thing of freeing you so that you can go back home. 500-mile journey. You get there, you lay the foundation, you celebrate, and then before you even really get started, you get stopped. Or think of the older people who had seen the first temple, 70-something years old, as they make this long, grueling 500-mile journey, leaving the comforts of home in Babylon to come to their old home in Jerusalem. And you barely get started, and what happens? Opposition. If it were me, now you guys are probably more godly than me, but if it were me, I would begin to ask God, what in the world is going on? You know, why, why would you do this to us? Look at all that we gave up for you to do this. We're doing all of the right things, and you're not helping us at all. You know, it, it's, it's like the marriage that is supposed to get better, and you're trying, and you're trying, and you're trying, and then he leaves, or she leaves. God, what is this? You know, it's, it's like you're, you're trying to, to overcome a sin struggle, and it's like God's not helping you at all. And it's like, God, do you want me to be addicted to this? God, do you want me to go through this? Why can't you just help me? And in Christian circles, we often have a really hard time with this kind of thought because we're always supposed to end it in a nice little neat bow where everything's better at the end. But for those of you who are in the valley, you know the valley is often a lot longer than what you ever could imagine. And sometimes we don't even get to see the other side of the valley. Sometimes we never understand. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and she still died. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and he still left. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I still can't overcome this. This is just a fact of life. And we can begin to ask God, why? Why do you allow these kind of things to happen when we're doing the best that we can? And throughout scripture, what we see is uh, that there's actually three reasons why God allows this to happen. And by the way, this is why I'm not a super huge fan of Christian movies. Uh, you guys can watch them. I'm not saying you're a sinner for watching them, but I tend to find them corny. You know, the atheist always dies in the end and everything's happy. But that's not how life works, is it? And I think we've got to be real about it. Because opposition is not something that might happen. Opposition is something that will happen. Struggles are not something that might happen. They will happen. Let me give you a really piece, uh, good piece of encouraging news. If you're not already in a season of suffering, you probably just came out of one. And if you didn't just come out of one and you're not in one, then you will go into one. We're all just one phone call away from doubting everything. You know, with one buzz of your phone, somebody you love is hurt. Somebody you love has died. It changes your entire week. You don't see it coming, but it's there. The valleys are always there. So why does God do this? Why is it so hard to do what we know is right? Well, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, just go ahead and write this down. Um, that was a joke. Number one, it reveals. It reveals. It reveals our love for God. 
See, for a lot of us, we think we love God, but really what he is for us is a vending machine. So if God is helping my marriage, let me keep plugging in. If God is, is helping uh, you know, my addiction problem, let me keep plugging in. You know, I'm pressing the buttons and the right thing's coming out. But as soon as the wrong things begin to come out, I don't actually want God anymore. I just want to have help with whatever I'm trying to do. And what suffering does is it reveals what you truly love. Uh, I had a pastor tell me this, and uh, I didn't believe him for a long time. The older I get, the more I see it as true. He defined love to me. He said, Blake, uh, love is, is at its core. And it might be nothing more, but it's certainly nothing less. It is sacrifice. To say I love you is to say I sacrifice for you. And the older I get, the more that I see that is true. See, in our culture, we have a very different definition of love. Uh, well, the problem is we have so many different definitions of love. You know, in one sentence, you can say, I love burritos. And then in the next, I love my wife. Hopefully, you don't love burritos as much as you love your wife. Hopefully, they're not the same thing. But what we often mean when we say, I love you, is I feel good around you. Or, I love you means I'm attracted to you. Or, I love you is I like the way that I feel when you're around. You make me better. And those things might be a part of love. and They certainly are, you know. Um, but they can't be what love is because that love will not survive. Now, I love my wife with all my heart, but there's many times in which, you know, I don't feel good around her. <laughs> there's many times where, you know, I love her, but I don't like her. And there's many more times in which she loves me and doesn't like me. You know, th this is the fact of marriage. And if you're a parent, it's even more so. Like, you don't get fuzzy feelings around your kids all the time. I mean, I hope you do sometimes, but sometimes, you know, it's like you're one step away from murder. <laughs> So what is love? Well, love is, is being willing to sacrifice for the person. I sacrifice for you. And I think we all know this. When we hear stories of this kind of love, it's, it's really the, the kind of tearjerkers that get us. I, I heard a story a couple weeks ago about uh, a godly man who had been married for 60-something years to his bride. And uh, he, he got really sick and was at the hospital, and he was in and out of consciousness and the doctor was making uh, his wife make a decision about, you know, if we lose him, do we resuscitate him? What do we do? Because he didn't have anything on file. And uh, he wasn't coherent at all. And then all of a sudden he set up in the middle of this and he told the doctors what he wanted them to do. He said, don't resuscitate me. He made the decision for his wife so she wouldn't have to. Then he told her, I love you with all of my heart. Then he laid down and he died. <laughs> and she goes home and she finds out on the next Valentine's Day that he had made a deal with the florist in town to send her flowers on his death anniversary and on Valentine's Day every year until she died also. That's how I want to love my wife. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of love that gets our hearts. Why? Because it's a love that is totally sacrificial. A love that is about the other person. Do you love Jesus that way, friends? See, suffering will reveal it. Suffering will. Because if you just love him when he makes you feel good, if you just love him when things are going right, then when things begin to go wrong, you'll, you'll step away from him. The Bible talks about this all the time, that as Christians, we are people who are joyful in suffering. We're not happy about suffering, but we're joyful in it because we love the Lord and we trust the Lord. And so I would just ask you, do you love God that way? What does it reveal about your heart? One of my uh, mentors, Stephen Earp, uh, another just beautiful story of the way that he loved his wife. His wife... Uh, got MS when she was in her late 30s and uh, slowly just degraded down to where she could hardly talk, hardly walk, hardly move. And uh, a lot of people recommended to Stephen, why don't you just put her in the nursing home? Um, and I don't think any of us would have blamed him for that. 
uh, put her in the nursing home and, and, and love her that way and let other people care for her. But he said, no, she's my wife. I'm going to care for her. I actually meant my vows when I said for better or for worse. I made a covenant before God, and this is what I'm going to do. So Stephen would bathe his wife, change his wife's diapers. You know, on your honeymoon, that's not something you're thinking about. And yet this is what true love is. The fuzzy feelings are completely gone, and yet I love you means I sacrifice for you. And uh, this guy uh, who uh, came to Stephen's church one Sunday, I got to witness this. And it, and it, it was truly amazing um, because they, they came to him and, and you know, he said, I understand what you're going through because my wife has MS also. And I kind of saw Stephen, you know, gritting his teeth and be nice. You, you see people like that sometimes where, you know, you're, you're trying to be nice and, and you don't really mean it. And uh, so I talked to him after and, and he said, you know, that, that guy and I are nothing alike. His wife got MS and he divorced her and he put her in a nursing home and remarried. There's a completely different thing. One was willing to suffer and sacrifice. One was only in it when it was good for them. I love you means I sacrifice for you. Do you love Jesus that way? Will you sacrifice for him? And as Christians, we know that 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. So this love, this sacrifice we have with Jesus is... It's not, you know, just one-sided. It's, it's knowing, no, Jesus, you loved me when I was at my worst, when I deserved the judgment of God, when I was far from you, when I was dead. You sacrificed everything for me. You went from the palace of heaven where the streets are paved with gold to be a poor carpenter in Galilee, to take nine-inch nails through your wrists and through your feet and a crown of thorns on your head for me. Jesus, I love you because you've loved me. I sacrifice for you because you've sacrificed for me. And by the way, if you're here today and, uh, you know, you're a teenage girl, I think of this often because my sisters, I love them to death. And, uh, you know, I often think of boys because I was one. And I, I, you know, I know all the tricks boys will use. And so every time I come across something like this, I just like to remind you that if a boy ever tries to use I love you to get you to do something you do not want to do, you can know that you're about to test whether he not he really actually loves you. Is he's not willing to wait if he's not willing to, to sacrifice his own desires for you until you're ready, then you know that he doesn't actually love you. He feels good around you or he's attracted to you, but to say I love you means I sacrifice for you. And when I have a daughter, God willing, I'm gonna set a boy down and I'm gonna tell him what love is. It's gonna be awkward, and I, I'm okay with that. You know, I hope everybody hates to date the pastor's daughter because that's how it's gonna be. But it's true. And so suffering will reveal to us whether or not we love God. Uh, number two is it prepares us. The Bible talks about this all the time. Uh, James 1 uh, says that we should count our trials as joy. What? You know, that's weird. You may have grown up in church and heard that, but that's weird. I don't count my trials as joy. What do you mean? Well, what the Bible tells us and what James tells us is that we count them as joy because they actually make us stronger. They produce character within us. It's the way that God sanctifies us or makes us more like him. And this is true in every area of life. Uh, you know, when, whenever you're training for a sport. So I mentioned the half marathon. I don't know why, but I signed up again. And uh, I began training. And before I began training, you know, I was like, I think I could probably run three miles. But I didn't know until I began to train. And when I went out there to begin to train, what I realized was is I can go about a mile and a half before I have an asthma attack. <laughs> And, uh, and so it revealed that. But guess what it also did? The next time I ran, I could go two miles. The next time I run, I can go 2.2. And then I can go three. Why? Well, it's because through struggling, through being uncomfortable, what am I doing? I'm actually making myself stronger. I'm being prepared. 
And the same is true in our spiritual life. And then the final thing is this, is it is a testimony. It's a testimony. There, there is nothing that makes our faith shine brighter. And Zach, you guys can go ahead and start making your way up here. Um, there's nothing that makes our faith in God shine brighter than when we're suffering willingly for him. You know, it's, it's not really that inspiring to me when you have faith when everything is going good. I mean, I'm glad for you. I rejoice with you. Uh, but it doesn't build my faith. You know, you know the people who, like, they thank God every time they find a parking space and everything seems to be going good for them. And you're like, well, that's great for you, but my life's kind of miserable. And in many ways, it's not really that hard to have faith when everything is going good. Like, it's not really that hard to, to have faith in God when um, you prayed for God to heal you and he healed you. We rejoice in that. That's great and that's awesome. But it's like you don't have to have faith when it's already been shown to be true. What shows more faith and what is more inspiring to me is when the person prays and prays and prays and prays. And yet it still hasn't gotten better. The marriage is still ending in divorce. They still died. And yet to the very end, they had faith in God. To me, that's what shines bright in this dark world. That's kind of what makes me wonder if I could be like them. I think a lot of uh, Taylor's mom, Mindy. Uh, Taylor's mom died nine years ago. We just uh, had the anniversary of that here on February 7th. And uh, this past Christmas uh, at her family, they shared, the family went around and they shared stories about Mindy and what they liked about her. One of her brothers uh, shared a story of what the pastor said to them when they were preparing for the funeral. The pastor shared a story that Mindy came to him uh, in the middle of, of this trial of cancer. And her question was not, why would God allow this to happen? Although I'm sure she had those kind of questions. Her question was, how can I serve God with this cancer? And I thought, what a great faith. See, she's not worried about God serving her. She was worried about how she could serve God. And she did to the very end. Anybody who knew Mindy knew how just wonderful of a person that she absolutely was. I think of Mindy every single time uh, we pay for Taylor's college. She was uh, in Proverbs chapter 16. It says that uh, a good man leaves an inheritance for his family. Well, Mindy uh, saw it as a good woman leaves an inheritance for her family. She made sure she had everything in line so that she would leave money behind for her kids to go to college if they wanted to go to college and to help them get started on life. And although we've had so much support, Taylor and I have, nobody has supported us more than Mindy, even though she died years before we ever got married. Because in her time of struggling and suffering, she thought of others first. She thought of God first. As you guys listen to this story of Mindy Harris, does it not build your faith in God? Does it not make you begin to wonder if you would do the same thing? Now, Mindy has a great testimony of God, but how many of you know a testimony of faith in anything is possible and it's not always equal? September 11, 2001, people had so much faith in their God that they flew a plane full of innocent people into a building full of innocent people. They had faith and it was a testimony of their faith. Now, I wonder if I would take the same kind of sacrifice for my God. And yet it's tragic because it was faith in the wrong thing. It was not faith in the true God. It was faith in a false God that caused them to kill people. You know, or or I, you know, I, I go down YouTube rabbit holes all the time, and I really like uh, Nazi videos. I'm just fascinated with it. The government's probably spying on me because they think I'm like a radical right-winger or something. But I'm always just amazed at how so many people could be fooled. You know, I'm always amazed at Hitler's inner circle who would literally stay in Berlin and they would die with him when everything was crumbling around them. They had faith. 
It was a testimony of faith, but it was faith in the wrong thing. So friends, how can we know that our faith in God and Jesus is the right kind of faith? Well, we look back to the cross of Jesus. See, because Jesus, at the end of his life, as he dies on the cross, it looked to be the worst possible thing that could ever happen. As I'm sure these Jewish exiles thought too when the temple was stopped. As I'm sure you think sometimes when things don't go the way you planned for them to go. It can look like this is the worst thing that could happen. The enemy has won. And yet what does God do in this? He takes what the enemy thought was victory and he makes it their, his ultimate victory. That little did the enemy know that by dying on the cross, Jesus was purchasing his people. Little did Satan know as he tried to uh, destroy the son of God that when he thought he was winning, he was actually losing. Because just as the first Adam in the garden was to stay away from the tree and he fell because of Satan's temptation, the second Adam, Jesus, was to not stay away from the tree but to go to the tree and to die on the tree. And although he did not want to in the Garden of Gethsemane as he bleeds, or as he sweats blood drops rather, he says, not my will but your will, Father. Dying for the world and exhausting the powers of evil so that Jesus has ultimate authority over this world. And as a Christian, I look back on that with the Apostle Paul and I say, God, if you would not even spare your own son, how will you not also give me everything else? God, I don't understand it. This world is so evil and dark and this is so hard. But I know you're the God who ultimately takes evil and you turn it to good. And everything, everything, whether I understand it on this side of eternity or the next, everything will be worked out for my good and for your glory. Friends, let me pray for you. God, I am so grateful for this day of rejoicing as a church family, but I know that there are people in this room who are weeping. There are people in this room who feel as if you have abandoned them. God, they can cry out with Jesus as he did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, Lord, you have not forgotten or forsaken them. And we look to Jesus on the cross to know that to be true. That whatever appears dead will, be, will bring new life. God, and I pray that you would use our suffering to reveal our love for you. Pray that you would use our suffering, God, to prepare us for what you have next for us. And God, I pray that our suffering and our fight against opposition when doing the right thing would be a testimony to the world. That we would shine bright in this dark world. That we would be salt in this tasteless world. Jesus, we love you. If you would take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed and head bowed and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to this king. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.